0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. We're in a sermon series called Revealed, a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our hope is that our eyes will be open to see that all scripture points to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to start this morning with a couple of quick pictures just to get us uh, on the idea of the series that we've been in. So let me show the first one here. Uh, That's kind of a silhouette of a famous person. Some of you may recognize them, some of you are too young, but as you fill in the silhouette, you see that is a picture of Alfred Hitchcock, and that is just an illustration of what we've been doing this summer in this series that we've been calling Revealed. In this series, our goal has been to have our eyes opened so that we would see Jesus is the center of all of Scripture. To use that example, we have been seeing how Jesus fills in the silhouette of the Old Testament. And this morning, we come to a passage in the Old Testament, for the early church at least, was the most important passage when it came to seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. More than any other passage, this passage right here is the one the church fathers meditated on. It became so important, they set aside three separate occasions throughout the church calendar year in order to read it and study it and speak about it. I'm talking this morning about the Passover. And if you're following on your notes here, I'll just say it again. No passage more clearly points to Jesus than the Passover. It's especially appropriate, I think, we're looking at this passage this morning because later in the service we're going to have the chance to celebrate communion together. And it's no accident that Jesus instituted communion, or we can also call it the Lord's Supper, during the time of the Passover. You see, part of the reason he instituted it is, was to show his disciples, even though they didn't understand at the time, I am what this passage was pointing to. I am the one who fills in the silhouette of the Passover lamb. Now, here's the truth, friends. There's no way in one morning that we can plumb the depths of this passage. In fact, I'll just be honest. I felt completely overwhelmed this week. My original goal was to talk about the Passover and the Exodus. (laughs) ha. So I decided I'm going to do something a little different than I've ever done before on a normal Sunday. Instead of a typical message, here's how I've decided to break this down. I'm just going to make six six observations about the Passover and how it relates to Jesus fulfilling it in the New Testament. That's how we're going to walk through this. I originally had 11, but I didn't want you to be here until Monday. Now, some of these are going to be a little bit longer than others, but really, again, I just want to remind you our goal is to show how Jesus fills in the silhouette of this passage. But we don't just want to know more about the Passover, do we? We want to be changed by the Passover and who Jesus is. And so each of these observations is also going to include a question a personal question that hopefully we can take and apply to our own lives. So I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have your own Bible, you can find this in one of the black Bibles on page 46 in those black Bibles. I'd love for you to turn there and grab one of those black Bibles with us. It's a longer portion of Scripture, uh, so I hope you are a first-hander this morning. Now before we read the text uh, and I make those observations, let's just understand a little bit about the context of the Passover. When the book of Exodus begins, the Israelites have been slaves to the Egyptians for over 400 years. And in Exodus chapter 1, the king of Egypt, we know as Pharaoh, we see as a cruel tyrant who seeks to destroy the Jews. They had become afraid at how great of a number the Jews had become. But God hears the cry of his people and he sends Moses to warn Pharaoh to let God's people go. But Pharaoh refuses to listen. And so God sends some judgment on the Egyptians in the form of plagues, nine plagues in all, where God shows his power over the gods of Egypt and over all of creation. In fact, when you study the plagues, I hope you realize what's really going on there. There's not random plagues. God is going after one of the gods or the goddesses of Egypt, showing I have power even over the Egyptian gods and goddesses. For example, we know that the Egyptian sun god was Ra. Well, the plague of darkness, God basically says, who has more power, Ra or the Lord God Almighty? Still, after all of these nine plagues, Pharaoh is not letting God's people go. So finally, God sends the 10th and deadliest plague of all, the death of all the firstborn. And that's really where Exodus 12 picks up. This is what the Passover is all about. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Look down to verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, "'Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dis- dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning.'" When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Skip down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's pray. Lord, as we've been praying throughout this series, we pray once again that we would have eyes to see and hearts that would burn. Help us to see behind just words on a page and see the glory of our Passover lamb who is Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, the first thing I noticed in this story and how it relates to Jesus, if you're following on your notes, is that the lamb had to be perfect. Did you see that? The lamb had to be perfect. In Exodus twelve five, God instructed the Israelites, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Every house was to choose their own animal and it had to have no defects. Why? Because the lamb was going to serve as a sacrifice for sin and the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God is a perfect sacrifice. And so this lamb had to be pure and spotless. Now how does this apply to us? Well, God demands perfection from us. Nothing less. The problem is, maybe you've learned this by now, is that none of us can achieve that standard. But boy, do we try Boy, do we try. We think our acts of righteousness or our religious activity is going to impress God. I think all throughout our culture, even in the church in the United States of America, there's this idea that if my good works outweigh my bad works, my scale will tip in my favor when the end has come. But God demands perfection, not just good. And so deep down, no matter how we try, we know we always come up short. Friends, I tried this for a time in my life. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. I knew that no matter how hard I tried, and I tried hard. I could not measure up to the perfect life that was required of me. Friends, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Scripture is clear. For God to pass over our sin, there must be a perfect sacrifice. Thankfully, when we get to the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, we have been given the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He knew no sin, but became sin for us. The Bible is very careful to show us this is true about Jesus, that he was the perfect Lamb of God. We know part of the reason he was born of a virgin is so that he wouldn't have the sin nature that stains each and every human being who has ever been born. Jesus didn't commit any transgressions while here on earth. Look at first 1 Peter 122. Peter, who knew Jesus well, said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in every way just as we are. That's good news. Yet, without sin. Hebrews 4.15. My favorite is Pontius Pilate. The very guy who condemns Jesus to death says these words, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus was morally perfect. Perfect. And thus he could serve as the spotless lamb of God. He meets the requirements that we need. The question for us to answer in this observation comes down to this, if you're on your notes. Have I admitted my imperfection and need for a spotless lamb? Have I admitted my imperfection and need for a spotless lamb? Friends, that is always, always, always the first step of salvation. Stop trying. Stop trying so hard. And simply admit that I need someone outside of myself to be my sacrifice. Second thing I notice in this passage is that as they prepared the lamb, there were to be no broken bones. There were to be no broken bones. I'm cheating a little bit here. This is in verse 46 of Exodus 12. If you still have your Bible open there, God is giving some more instructions here. And he says these interesting words. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside of the house. And then there's a small sentence that says, do not break any of the bones. I don't know what you think about when you hear that, but I can't help but think about the crucifixion of Jesus. We know from the story that they were crucified the day before the Sabbath, and so the religious leaders were asking the Romans to make sure that the two criminals and Jesus were in fact dead. And the way they did that is they would go up to the cross and they would break their legs. And we're told that's exactly what happened. We see it in John chapter 19. John, who was an eyewitness of these events, says this, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But... When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Well, that's interesting information, John. No, it's more than just interesting information. John, reflecting on this later in life as he writes this gospel, realizes something significant is happening here, and he says this in verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And if you have a Bible that has little footnotes there, it'll refer you all the way back. To Exodus chapter 12. Why am I talking about this? Because the question that this series has been posing again and again and again, and once again this morning, if you're following on your notes, is do I see Jesus as the fulfillment of all Scripture? Do I see Jesus as a fulfillment of all Scripture? I mean, that's just one example of many we've looked at this summer, and there's so many more we could look at. The question we are left to answer is is Jesus just a good teacher? Was he a morally good guy? Was he some sort of a prophet or or as we've been learning in this summer is he the centerpiece of all history? Is he Lord? And part of the reason we believe he is Lord is because again and again he fulfills what scripture says. Have our eyes been opened? Have our eyes been opened to see Jesus for who he really is? Third thing I noticed is that they were to share with their neighbors. They were to share with their neighbors. This is one of my favorite things about this story. Look at verse 4 again. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. I love that. Hey, look around. Share with those who may not have enough. I think there's a clear call for us as Christ Church here, and I see it in two different ways. We share Jesus in two different ways. First of all, in America, I think as Christians, we think of salvation mostly in individual terms. It's something between me and God. God has done something for me. Now that's true, but we also believe in something called the communion of the saints. That God has bought us at a great price. He has called us as individuals to become part of something bigger, to become a part of a family, to become a part of what the Bible says is the body. The body of Christ. Salvation is a shared experience. This is why when the Bible talks about salvation, it almost always talks about it in the plural. It talks about us. I'll give you one example in Hebrews 10 starting in verse 23. Just notice the us's. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you get it? We're meant to share in this, together, it was God's design when he designed the church. We need one another. I like what Chuck said earlier. You know, you go away for a week, and maybe you don't, aren't able to go to a church. Does that do something to you? It does something to me. Something's missing. Something's lacking in my life. I feel it, and God has designed it that way purposefully. We are meant to sharpen one another. As we read in that verse, we're meant to encourage one another so we don't give up meeting together. And yet, there's more than just sharing this good news with one another. We know that God has also asked us to share it with the world. To bring this message of salvation to those who don't yet know it. Who aren't yet a part of the body of Christ. God desires all people come to a knowledge of him and how he accomplishes that. This is scary. It's through us. I'll give you one verse. Jesus saying to his disciples before he it into heaven. In Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are called to share. To share the gift that we have been given with our neighbors both near and far. And so, in light of this, I think two questions are appropriate for us to consider. First, am I committed to sharing in fellowship with the church? Am I committed to sharing in fellowship with the church? I don't care if it's our church or another church. Are you surrounding yourself with some other believers to be encouraged, to be sharpened? Are you taking the gathering together of the body of Christ and making that a priority for your family? Second question is, am I committed to sharing Christ with others? Am I committed to sharing Christ with others? The Passover lamb was meant to be shared. He still is. He still is. The fourth thing I notice in this text, and this is by far the most important part of the story, I'm going to spend the most amount of time on it, if you're falling on your notes here, is that God provided the means of salvation. He provided the means of salvation, but... It had to be personally applied. It had to be personally applied. I don't know if you've ever read uh, through Exodus, but when I come to Exodus 12, I wonder sometimes if the Israelites were shocked that their lives were in danger. You see, all the previous plagues had left them unharmed. Because God had made a distinction between his people and the Egyptian people. We know the Israelites occupied the land of Goshen. And so they're sitting there in safety watching all these plagues in Egypt. And so I thought, I think they started to wonder like, yeah, we're really special. And maybe they started to believe, maybe we're a little bit more righteous than the Egyptians. Maybe we can do no wrong. But the truth is, as they're about to learn here, is that they deserve judgment every bit as much as their enemies. Indeed, if God had not provided a means for their salvation, the blood of a lamb, they would have suffered the loss of every firstborn son as well. The Israelites are just as guilty of sin as the Egyptians are. And in the final play, God is teaching them and us still today about sin and about salvation. He teaches them that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Romans now, I know this is not a popular message today. I'm talking about sin and death and blood. People don't want to hear this today. And yet, this is the centerpiece of Scripture. It's a reality every individual is going to have to face in some day. If all have sinned, that means that includes me. And if the wages of sin is death, that means that's my fate. Death apart from God. You will simply never see your need for the blood of Christ unless you come to that conclusion. And yet, just like in this story, here's the good news. God always provides a way for us. He always provides a way for us. Read through the history of redemption and you see this idea that God is always going to provide a sacrificial lamb for his people. You see it immediately in Genesis 22. When God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son and they're going up on the mountain, Isaac's no dummy. He's like, Dad, uh, where's the lamb? And you remember Abraham's response. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Oh my goodness, what faith. And that's exactly what happens. God provided what God required. A lamb would die in the place of Abraham's son. As Pastor Brian showed us several weeks ago, every year God would provide a similar sacrifice for Israel. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring a perfect, spotless lamb into the Holy of Holies, and on behalf of the Israelites, that lamb would be sacrificed. So we've moved from an individual, Isaac, to a nation, Israel. And notice how this progresses to John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From one person to one nation to the whole world, God always provides a way for people to know him, to come to him, to be saved, and yet... There's another side to our salvation, and we see it very clearly in the Passover story, and that's our part. God doesn't want us just to be passive observers in this whole process. He wants us to be active participants. Would you read verse 22 out loud on your notes with me there? It says, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Now, let me just demonstrate a little bit here what they had to do. I want you to get a real sense. These people had to choose a lamb. We already saw that, a lamb without defect, and that lamb would live with them. That lamb would become like a pet to them. And then God said, at a certain day, I need you to kill that lamb. So they're taking active participation in it, and you're going to spill the blood of the lamb, and then you're going to take that blood, and you have to personally apply it to your house. And so they would take the blood, and I learned, I tried this several years ago, I learned I'm not going to ruin another pair of shoes, so we already kind of did it here. You know, they would have to personally apply the blood. they take a branch of hyssop. Now let me ask you something. Doesn't this seem ridiculous? Paul might call it foolishness. And yet, what it really is, is faith. Am I going to trust and obey what God has asked me to do? He has promised that when he looks at the blood of the lamb, he will pass over our house. To be effective, though, a person had to personally apply the blood. Friends, the same is still true today. Christ, whose blood has achieved for us an even greater sacrifice. I mean, we've sung about it all morning. Hallelujah. must be personally applied. It must be personally applied. Each person for themselves must decide, am I going to stand under the blood or not? Am I going to apply it to my life or not? Am I going to trust that this is the means of God's deliverance? Now, maybe you wonder, like, why all the blood? What's the deal with blood? Well, Let me get real technical here. We're talking about something called substitutionary atonement. You know what a substitution is? If you play sports, you do. When a pitcher gets worn out, they bring in a substitute pitcher. The idea is similar. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus has taken our place. His blood is a greater sacrifice so that my life might be spared, that God might pass over me. The New Testament talks about this all the time, about the blood of Jesus. If it makes you squirm, I'm sorry. It's the center of our faith. Look into some of these verses here. We have now been justified by his blood. That means we've been made right only by his blood. Romans 5, 9. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins ephesians 1:7 jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own blood hebrews 13:12 you were redeemed through the bre- precious blood of christ a lamb without blemish or defect what is he talking about there <laughs> he's talking about the passover who has now been fulfilled in Christ. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. The reason for all this talk about blood is simple. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9, 22. Therefore, in order to be saved from death, we need the blood of a perfect sacrifice, someone to take my place, and that is exactly what God has provided for you and for me. Perhaps the greatest verse that shares this so clearly for us is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's read this out loud together on the screen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has provided a lamb. We call that grace. But the Israelites had to trust in the blood of that lamb. We call that Faith. And the same is true today. If you're following on your notes there, have I personally applied the blood of Christ to my life? I'm not just talking about blood as an idea. Have I personally applied the spilt blood of Jesus Christ over my life? Do I stand under it as my salvation, as my substitute? We need to keep going. The fifth thing I noticed is that they were to get rid of all the yeast. Did you notice this in the story? God makes a pretty big deal about getting rid of all the yeast in their homes. What's the deal here? Is he advocating a gluten-free diet or what? Well, for one thing we know is unleavened bread or bread without yeast was to remind the Israelites for generations to come of the hasty departure they were to make. But getting rid of yeast had another purpose. Jewish teachers have always understood yeast to represent the corrupting power of sin. Bread without yeast symbolizes Holiness, bread with yeast, symbolizes the corrupting nature of sin. I mean, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Just like yeast begins to spread throughout the bread, so too does sin begin to spread in our lives if we don't check it, if we aren't careful with it. Which is why the Bible makes this comparison. Here's really what I think this comes down to. God wanted to do something more than just get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. I'll say that again. God wanted to do more than just get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. He was saving them, delivering them in order to sanctify them. In order to make them a people of his calling. This is the same for us today. Why is God saving us? Why did he send his son as our substitution? Is it just so that we could punch our ticket to heaven? Oh no, he's creating a people he is calling us into something so much more. He is calling us to holiness. He is calling us as we learn in our series in Luke to become more like Christ. Paul takes this in 1 Corinthians 5 and he just he's using this passage again. It's all over the New Testament. He says your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So what do we do? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I mean, he's just using this example of the Passover and saying, get rid of the stuff in your life that's going to keep you from living a life of sincerity and truth. It's the call for us still today. Is there some yeast in your life that you need to get rid of? Friends, this morning I had to get rid of the yeast of fear in my life. It's something I have to regularly do. Otherwise, it begins to spread into other parts of my life. Maybe you're indulging a secret lust. Maybe there's a sin. You're deciding, oh, it's not a big deal. God can tolerate this in my life. We have been called... To a greater purpose. We have been bought with a price. So let us live lives worthy of the calling God has given us. If you're following on your notes, is there a sin in my life I need to get rid of? Is there a sin in my life I need to get rid of? Last but certainly not least, God says they are to remember it regularly. They are to remember it regularly. You see this again and again. In Exodus twelve fourteen. for example, God says, This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Israel was to remember this Passover celebration every year. Why? Because God knows we forget. We forget about his greatness. We forget about his deliverance. We go through the motions of religion instead of remembering His deliverance. Fast forward to the New Testament. On the night he's betrayed, Jesus takes bread. He takes wine. No mistake here. No doubt about it. He's filling in the silhouette of the Passover, and he says these words in Luke 22. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, the Lamb of God, given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If he is not God's son, he should be killed right there for blasphemy. A Jewish person reading this would have gasped because Jesus is claiming, I'm the fulfillment of the Passover. What you used to celebrate every year has taken on new meaning. So when you gather around my table and you remember communion, When you take the Lord's Supper, remember. Remember what this is really about. It's not dead ritual. It's not just going through the motions of religious activity. It is reminding ourselves that we have been delivered from a much greater enemy than the Egyptians. We have been delivered from death and sin itself. But we were delivered at a cost. And so we're about to take communion and we're going to remember we're going to remember him. And so, the question for you to consider as we do that is Will I remember the significance of the Lord's Supper as I take it? It's so easy to go through the motions. But God's warning to the Israelites and his encouragement to us today is do not take what we're about to do lightly. Remind yourself often. Remind yourself often. Of what it costs me in order for you to be delivered, in order for you to be adopted, in order for you to be redeemed. These are my six observations of Passover and how Jesus fulfills them. Before we take communion, though, I thought it'd be appropriate to ask one more question, because really this is the question every person must grapple with at one time in their life. It's the question that all of this has been leading us towards. I know you're exhausted from questions, but one more question. I would be remiss if I didn't ask it. Have I trusted Jesus as my substitute? Have I trusted Jesus as my substitute, my Passover lamb, so that I might be set free from my bondage to sin and death? Hear the message of the gospel. God always provides a way that is grace, but we must personally apply it that is faith. Jesus has been revealed to us. And his message is, it is by grace through faith that you are saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what is there to say other than thank you? We've said it in song already this morning. This is amazing grace. Your blood cries out, Jesus saves Oh, that we would all remember that this morning in a fresh way. That we would be reminded that we were bought at a price. That you took our place. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. As we take communion, let us meditate on this. Let us exalt in your greatness, in your glory, in your plan. Let us be in awe of your love and your mercy and your grace. And let us respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.